I trust your prayers this morning will be answered. I need your prayers as I stand before you this morning. I do greet you in Jesus' name. Our Master, I really appreciated the discussion we had in Sunday school class of Jesus and his relationship with his Father and as he tried to relay the truth of of who he was to the people there. They didn't always find it easy, but but there was seed sown. There were people that did believe. And, and whether they all... Well, we know they didn't all follow through in the same way. If you read through, I think it's especially in the Gospel of John, you see the crowds hailing him as with Hosanna, and a few hours later, really, a few days later, a mob, likely a lot of the same people, crying for his blood. But then later, in the book of Acts, we read of multitudes, multitudes, that when they saw the demonstration of the Spirit joined the church in repentance and belief, and that was, that was a continuing culmination of the ministry of Jesus, I believe. And we want to look a little bit at that here today. I'd like to continue our study in Acts. You can turn to Acts chapter 8. I know it's been a while since we looked. I had t- done several messages from Acts and then one a few weeks ago and looked at how the deacons had been ordained and were serving and the church was growing. In chapters 6 and 7, we have Stephen's, you could say trial. It wasn't a trial. But his accu- his being accused and his his bold proclamation and and demonstration of the gospel and and what it cost him. And it cost him dearly. It cost him his life. And we'll pick up here in in chapter 8, verse 1 of Acts. It says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Stop the reading there for for right now. So there was a, a time here, possibly several years, that there was relatively peaceful growth in the church. Uh, Yes, Peter and and John were taken before the council a number of times, but there wasn't wholesale persecution that we read of. But hard times were coming. And it seems here is that the, the murder of Stephen was a turning point, that the boldness of, of the mob here and the stoning only whetted their appetite for, for more. 
It seems that prior to this time, much of the persecution that we had read about in Acts against the apostles was centered on the apostles, perhaps from prominently the Sadducees in relation to the preaching of the resurrection. Often that comes up. And as you read through, as we looked at those first five chapters of Acts, the resurrection prominently broadcast and, and proclaimed, and it really got a reaction. But it seems now that if, you, if we would go back and look at Stephen's defense, he talks about the temple and how God doesn't just dwell in the temple. He dwells in people's hearts. Well, that, that really got under the, the skin of the, the whole Sanhedrin, the Pharisees as well. And then he says, he, he mentions the law and how the law was, was given and you haven't kept it. And well, we know the Pharisees really held to the law. He was also, Stephen was also a Greek-speaking Jew. And it seemed like the combination of these things likely turned the Pharisees on him, as on, on the, the church even more so. And if we remember the advice of Gamaliel there earlier when he said, just let, let these things go and we'll see what happens. And now it seems like that advice is, is disregarded. From that day, or at that time, it says here there was great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Well, we see that this persecution was not without its purpose and its fruit. In verse 1 there it says, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What does Acts 1, verse 8 say? Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So we see here that that's that next step. As we read through Acts, we see that those three, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, the, the categorizing and the, the working out of that witness being spread abroad. So it seems like this persecution enabled that second step that was to happen. The, the word scattered here in verse 1 and verse 4, and it's also used in verse 11 looking back at this, is a different Greek word than the other forms of, uh, that we have as scatter in the New Testament. And it's, it's used with the idea of, of sowing, of scattering, but other places the term scattered would mean throwing away wastefully, just getting rid of. Here it's scattered with like sowing seed. We scatter. And we believe that that was part of the purpose of this. It was seed being dispersed out. The gospel went out. And as they went, it says here in verse 4, they went preaching the word. This word was preaching. I, I'm surprised how many times the word preach is in the New Testament. 
I don't know exactly, I didn't, I didn't count them all up. It's a number of different words used that we have preach. This word carries the idea of evangelizing, announcing the good news. So they went out to tell a message. They didn't just go out to hide. They went out to spread the message of, of the gospel. And I have to ask myself, is this what I do? Is this what my purpose is? Did they find it easier to do that when they went out, away from their home? We understand that missionaries, mission boards want missionaries that are missionaries at home before they go out. But you know, I, I wonder sometimes how much easier is it to tell somebody something that you haven't met before because they don't know you and your background and all the faults that you have and all the inconsistencies and our complacency, perhaps. And I was, I was convicted as I considered this. Yesterday, a, a neighbor called and he needed some help and I was glad to help him. I speak to him very infrequently. But we have a good relationship. But I don't know if I've talked to him for a year. I can see his house every day. I went and helped him. We exchanged pleasant, pleasantries and I left. And, and I got home and I thought, you know, what does preaching mean? What does is, what is proclaiming the gospel mean? He sees my life from a distance. But what, what have I said? I do think I have a responsibility more than I acknowledge or realize sometimes. I was talking to a friend a number of years ago, but he's a, a friend, acquaintance friend, and he's a Catholic. And as we discussed one day, we had a long conversation one time. I've met, met him a number of times, but we were talking about this thing of, of witnessing and evangelizing. And I did not realize this, but the Catholic perspective of that is that there's the apostolic succession. And only, well, I think it's the cardinals that, that follow in that succession, they are responsible for outreach and evangelism and the, the, the ordinary person is not. But I found it interesting here that it says that they were all scattered abroad except the apostles and as they went, they preached. So I put, that puts the responsibility, I believe, on each of us, not just on a select few. The apostles, though, it says here, did stay in Jerusalem Maybe perhaps this persecution, as I, as I referenced, was more toward the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews that were converted. We don't know for sure. But not nearly everyone else left Jerusalem. There was still a church there. Relief was sent to the believers there. Barnabas was sent from there. But a lot went out. And 
Here, Luke, in writing this, does not spend a lot of time going over the details of this persecution. Later, he looks at it a little bit more, but instead focuses on what happened when people went out and the progressive witness of the church. And in verse 5 of Acts 8, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. What is significant about this? Who were the Samaritans? And maybe this isn't real relevant, but I I find it very interesting to consider because I think it is important. Here, as as we looked at in Acts 1.8, it says the witness would go out to Samaria. The Samaritans... Samaria was the the capital there of of the nation of Israel after the divided kingdom. And in 2 Kings 17, after the deportation, it says in verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and Hamath and from Sephavaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwellings there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the God, the manner of the God of the land. Therefore hath he sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land." Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt, And jumping down to verse 41, it says, So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. It was a a mixed pagan religious system, people. They tried to pacify God but still hold on to their, their pagan ways. They were despised by the Jews, the pure-blood Jews. They, they despised them. Jesus' action, interaction with the woman at the well there in Sychar gives a window. Jesus had gone down into Samaria, the, the region of Samaria. And there in verse 9 of John 4, it says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This was unusual, very unusual, that Jesus talked with her and asked her to do something for him. A few verses later, the woman says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So here we see a little bit, and history has, there's a lot of different writing about this, but the Samaritans thought Mount Gerizim was was where 
the temple was to be uh, the Jews say Jerusalem. So there was a, a difference in their their application of of Judaism. Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan, kind of turning again the Jews' view of Samaritans on its head. In Luke 17, Jesus healed ten lepers of Samaria. And we read across it, and I don't know that I've ever thought about it. Who were these people? And what did the Jews think of them? But Jesus was ministering there. Jesus was planting seeds. We see him breaking down the racial and the ethnic tensions that had been at play for generations. And now we see Philip coming to these people. And in verse 6, in verse 5 it says, He had preached the word, preached Christ unto them. And in verse 6 it says, And the people, Acts 8, 6, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. As we, as we look there in John 4, we know that the woman at the well acknowledged that they were looking for a Messiah. And I have to wonder what Philip preached how he preached Christ that connected with them. I think he took what they knew. He took what they had, had seen and experienced, somehow preached Christ. And that ask, makes me ask myself, how do I preach Christ to people? What Do I know where they are? What they understand? Here again, my neighbor, what, what should I say to him? But secondly, does my life give evidence to the transforming work of Christ? Philip didn't just talk. He did some things. Now we aren't performing the same miracles that he did. And yet I think they could see that there was a lining up of what he did and what he said. He proclaimed power through Christ and then he demonstrated it. We looked at that in the Sunday school lesson there of, of Jesus' actions lining up with what he said, who he said he was. Does my life give evidence of the reality of what I profess? Does it give public testimony? But how about in my own heart? And that's something that only we can, can discern, the Lord and, and myself. My mind goes to the announcement I just read and the concerns that we are experiencing, people in our, in our fellowship, Failures of, of morality, of integrity. And yet we can come to church and proclaim and profess with our 
our presence, perhaps our words? Does my life line up with what I profess? The response of these people as they saw this, verse 8 says, and there was great joy in that city. How are you doing? I get asked that question often. Do you get asked that question often? Seems like every time I talk to somebody, I call them on the phone, they say, how are you doing? Talk to someone, meet them in town, how are you doing? How am I doing? Are you joyful? Am I joyful? Do I let it be known? Let's sing a little song about joy. Why don't we all stand up and sing J-O-Y? And I think most of the children can help too if they will. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this must surely mean Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this must surely mean Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. Thank you. You may be seated. So there was joy here. And we see in verse 9, and we read verses 9 through 13 now of Acts 8. It says, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. Here was the power of God overshadowing the power of darkness. Because there was some power here, some magic, it says, some sorcery, things that were done that demonstrated power, and the people, it said, had been held in, kind of held in bondage, perhaps, by his, his demonstrations. But here came a power that even overwhelmed him. And he saw this, and it says he believed and was baptized. And I don't have a reason to doubt that he believed that there was power in the name of Jesus. I find it interesting that in our lesson, it, in... in uh, John 8, verse 51, where Jesus says, if ye, I should find it so I can, can read it exactly like it, it is. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. It doesn't say if you believe on me, you shall never see death. 
Now, it says belief, but we see here belief and, and action tied together. But we see here Simon believed, he was baptized, and he continued following Philip and learning. In verse 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. I believe that this was a very significant happening, a very significant event in the life of, of the church. Peter and John were sent perhaps to investigate, make sure this was authentic, that the reception wasn't just heard, that they, they really bought in, that they believed, perhaps to confirm that this was true, and maybe sanction this, this new development in, the, in the, the growth of the church. The Holy Spirit was here given in a very definite way through the apostles, through Peter and John. And none could argue that the Samaritans were part and parcel. They were welcome in this church, in the church there was no way to argue with their validity of being part of the kingdom of God. And this, this seal, as the Holy Spirit is referred to in Ephesians, I believe, or stamp, a mark of ownership, is, how we, is one way that the Holy Spirit is, is instrumental in the life of the Christian. It, was, it came through the apostles making the church one. There was to be no Samaritan church and Jew, Jewish church. It was one church. Verse 18, And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter saith, said unto him, Thy money, money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon thee. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. We don't know what all was going through Simon's mind, but we don't know his, his heart. Some would take this in very varied ways, but I do know that sometimes old thought patterns and habits are hard to shake. And Simon here was used to to money and power, and, and that's the, that was his thought process. And he saw power, and he thought, I, I want that power. I, I believe in it. I want to be able to exercise it at my will, maybe for my good.
And he was very thoroughly reprimanded and, and called to repent because he wanted to use what God had given for his own value and benefit. I don't know what that exact application would be for us, but you know, I've heard of, of people that join churches, especially Mennonite churches, because there's some reputation, there's some business advantages, there's some community uh, advantages. And yet there's no conversion. And I, I had to think of that. Let us not use our, our reputation, our standing as, a, as one of, of a church with a good reputation to just to gain financially or socially. Let's make sure our heart is right. Right before God. And that we use this gift as a gift. And that we share this gift of the gospel. We see here then the, that Peter and, and John went back to Jerusalem. And as they went, they preached the gospel in many cities of the Samaritans. I find that interesting in another way. There's a, a passage in Luke 9. This was John before conversion. Luke 9, 51 to 56. And it came to pass that the time was come that he, or Jesus, should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples saw, and when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, saying, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. That was John, and now John was preaching to the Samaritans. And I think it's a beautiful picture. As we move on down then, we see that Philip was called away from his work there in Samaria. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. That speaks of a willing servant. He rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture where he read was this. 
He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer, a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they were come up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord caught, Philip, caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I'll just say this about Philip before we go back and look a little bit more. But following this, it says the Spirit caught him away. And Azotus, I believe, was the city of Ashdod, which was just north up the seacoast there. And then he went up to Caesarea, and as he went, it says he preached in all the cities. And just the faithfulness of, of a man that was called. So we looked at back when we, the last message from Acts, the deacons, it says they were full of, of faith. They were faithful men, and we saw Stephen's faithfulness, and then we saw see Philip's continued faithfulness. As we look at, the, at what the eunuch was doing, reading, I found this, this uh, quote from F.B. Meyer. It says, The Bible is good as a traveling companion. Take it on your journeys. Read it as other men do their newspapers. Not exclusively, but boldly. There are many stories afloat of bullets being stopped by pocket testaments, and it is certain that, there, that many a desperate thrust of the devil has been warded off by the word of God being hidden in the heart and worn as a breastplate. Live in touch with God, and he will put you in touch with souls. The eunuch was in touch with God in a way. He was reading, he was searching, and God met his need. He longed to understand the meaning of this prophecy. And he took time to read, to meditate. I desire to understand the scriptures. But sometimes I allow my pace of life to become harried enough that I don't take the time to meditate and let God speak to me either personally or together as we, as we fellowship and, and discuss the scriptures. I mean, prophecy is not always clear. This man said, who was this about? And Philip was able to show him the fulfillment in hindsight. The, the, this had already happened. There was fulfillment in Christ, but the eunuch hadn't seen it. And, and I see here it was lack of, of knowledge, not just understanding. He didn't know what had happened. 
And he couldn't say, oh, yes. Well, Philip preached, yes, here was Jesus. Here was how he lived. Here was how he was put on trial innocently. Uh, his, he wasn't justly condemned, but he suffered. And the eunuch says, oh, yes, I understand. This was the man. And he had a, the eunuch had a desire to be obedient when he heard the gospel. And the prerequisite for baptism was belief, true faith. And it's just a beautiful picture. of The eunuch says, okay, I understand. What do I do? Can I be baptized? If you believe, yes. And then it says he went on his way rejoicing. We just read about that and we sang a song about that. The, the impact of the gospel should be rejoicing and joy. I wonder how far the eunuch read in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within mine, my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. To everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet I will gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Did the eunuch see that he was fulfilling prophecy? He was one of those that, as it says here, choose the things that please me and that take hold of my covenant. I just think it's a beautiful picture. He himself reached out desiring to fulfill God's covenant, to take hold of that. And then he was one of those that was able to have a name better than sons and daughters, more precious than family, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And we are the sons of strangers, are we not? We were not of those of Jewish descent. We are not even those of the Samaritans. We are those, the sons of a stranger that have joined themselves to the Lord. 
to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. And here in verse 7, it says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. So, to summarize, we have a message that we are to carry. We are to be faithful in, in proclaiming, in preaching. And I don't think that that's just people that get a title of preacher. And each of us, I believe, are to continue to remember and meditate on the things of the Lord and be joyful as we experience the salvation. The salvation that we can experience now and blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Let's joy in that.